Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Episode 45, Hellenistic Philosophy, Stoics and Stoicism. Near the dark forests of the northern Danube, arguably the most powerful man during the late 2nd century AD, sat alone in his tent, writing in his diary. For the Roman Emperor, Marcus Aurelius, the burden of rule was unusually heavy. Incursions by Germanic tribes, the worst plague in Roman memory, and the loss of at least eight children despite access to the best doctors and midwives in the entire empire put immense pressure upon the man as both a leader and a father. Yet, for Marcus, always a highly intelligent and introspective person, he could find some measure of solace by engaging in philosophy. During his campaigns, the emperor penned a series of philosophical writings, often known as the Meditations, which were never intended for publication since they were essentially diary entries written by Marcus for Marcus only, and served as sort of a self-help guide. Yet, nearly 2,000 years later, they have survived, and remain one of the most famous and widely read personal memoirs ever written, reflecting the core ideals of one of the main pillars of Hellenistic philosophy, Stoicism. Arguably the most popular of the schools to emerge during the period, Stoics were renowned for their adherence to living a virtuous life through rationality and self-control, but they were also pioneers in the field of logic and epistemology, which challenged and expanded upon the views of the dominant Platonic and Aristotelian schools of thought. In this episode, we'll discuss the history, the doctrine, and the legacy of Stoicism in order to better understand why so many, like Marcus, were attracted to it. The origins of Stoicism takes us once again to Athens in the early 3rd century BC. This time we stay in the heart of the city and head to the northern part of the Agora, where we will find and enter a covered walkway known as the Stoa Poikile, the painted Stoa. Normally you would see merchants hawking their goods and the gossiping of wealthy and poor Athenians alike, but in one portion of the Stoa were a large number of people standing at attention around a man who pontificated on things like virtue and logic. This man is named Zeno, and his followers were known as Zenonians, but would later adopt the nickname of the Stoics, deriving their name from their unorthodox classroom setting of the Stoa. Zeno of Citium was born in roughly 334-330 to a Phoenician merchant family in Cyprus, and by the age of 30 he had moved from Citium to Athens and began to pursue a life of philosophy. There are a few stories explaining what led to his change in residency and career, but according to the most famous, Zeno was browsing in the Athenian marketplace during a commercial expedition and came upon the ancient equivalent of a bookstore. He picked up a copy of The Memorabilia by Xenophon, a lesser-known account compared to the dialogues of Plato, but nevertheless Zeno was fascinated by the figure known as Socrates. Asking the bookseller where he must go to find more men like Socrates, Zeno was pointed to Crates the Cynic, who happened to be passing by the shop. And so Zeno began his career under the Cynic's tutelage. Though he admired some of their teachings, Zeno also studied under the school of the Megarians and the Platonic Academy, both of which considerably influenced his later teachings. By 300, he had begun to amass a following by performing informal lectures at the Stoa, which officially began the Stoic movement as we know it. Following the death of Zeno in 262, the school had undergone an evolution in its ideas and doctrine, and there was not much in the way of a strict orthodoxy in its beliefs. 
Many of the students of Zeno, especially one Aristo, would critique or revise his ideas, though not all of them would be accepted by later practitioners. But by the time of the third head of the Stoa, that of Chrysippus of Soli, this quickly began to change. Chrysippus was certainly the most important Stoic teacher following Zeno, sometimes referred to as the second founder, and was responsible for systematizing Stoic beliefs into the vast body of works he penned during his lifetime, especially in regards to logic. Chrysippus possibly holds the distinction of one of the most unique deaths of all of history. Allegedly, according to one source, he might have died in a fit of laughter after observing a donkey eating a bowl full of figs and cracking a joke about offering it some wine to wash down the figs. It must have been funnier at the time. And it also may have just been satirical given the idea of a stoic laughing himself to death, but it's entertaining nevertheless. The actual structure of the school of the stoa, if you can call it that, is poorly understood. We know there was a formal head, known as the Scholarch, and this position would be passed down following the death of the previous leader. We also know that the lectures weren't free, and like the Sophists, the philosophers of the Stoa would charge to teach the children of wealthy clients. The background of its members varied dramatically, and the heads of the school reflect the cosmopolitan nature of the Hellenistic period. Zeno was a Phoenician, Diogenes was from Babylon, and Chrysippus, Cleanthus, and Antipater were all from various cities in Anatolia. For the Stoics, philosophy is the highest good, largely because our goal as human beings is to achieve happiness and flourishing by living in accordance with nature and being rational, which is achieved through the act of philosophy. Based upon the observation of nature, there is a degree of rationality, and humans are rational animals. Well, most of the time anyways. Stoic philosophy is structured according to three aspects. Logic, which is the study of inference and deductive reasoning through language, physics, and ethics. These aren't necessarily separate pieces. They are all mutually interconnected and contribute to one another, and to the overall idea of Stoicism. Diogenes Laertius gives us an extensive visual metaphor on the relationship. Quote, they, referring to the Stoics, compare philosophy to an animal, likening logic to the bones and sinews, ethics to the fleshier parts, and physics to the soul. Or again, they compare it to an egg, for the outer parts, the shell, are logic, the next part, the white, is ethics, and the inmost part, the yolk, is physics, or to productive field, of which logic is the wall surrounding it, ethics is the fruit, and physics is the land and trees, or to a city which is beautifully fortified and administered according to reason. End quote. One of the most famous early admirers of Stoicism was actually the Macedonian king, Antigonus II Gennatus, who was something of a predecessor of Marcus Aurelius. He attended the lectures of Zeno during his education and stay in Athens, and even offered Zeno a position at his court later on, though the philosopher politely declined on the account of his age, and died shortly thereafter anyways. If you haven't listened to episode 38 on the reign of Antigonus Gennatus, he is almost universally praised by later writers as the closest example of a philosopher king during the Hellenistic period, and taking embellishment and propaganda into consideration, that is quite impressive, most attributing his good nature and humility to these very same Stoic teachings. Stoicism would soon be brought to the Italian peninsula in approximately 155 BC, when a three-man ambassadorial mission was sent from Athens to Rome comprised of the heads of the Peripatetic School, the Platonic Academy, and the Stoa. During his visit, 
The Stoic representative Diogenes of Babylon lectured there and proved to be immensely popular. And although the institution of the Stoa did not survive Sulla's sack of Athens in 86 BC, ironically, the greatest champion of Stoicism proved to be its very conqueror. Many influential Romans would adopt Stoicism over the centuries. Caesar's great rival, Cato the Younger, and the philosopher-tutor of the emperor Nero, Seneca, both were prominent Stoics, and both committed suicide under similar principles. An ex-slave named Epictetus was a famous Stoic instructor, whose important work, the Enchiridion, was preserved by his student Arian, the same historian of the Anabasis of Alexander fame. Marcus Aurelius, as we've discussed earlier, was an ardent admirer of Epictetus, and ultimately became the Stoic movement's most recognizable figurehead, and the last remnants of a formal Stoic school closed by the 6th century AD, following the decrees of the Emperor Justinian. But for the moment, I think we've covered enough of its history, and now we should turn to the bread and butter of Stoic philosophical doctrine, starting out with the study of logic. Stoic philosophy is that, despite the vast corpus of works that were written by practitioners like Chrysippus, who allegedly had over 700 volumes to his name alone, almost nothing survives from the early and middle periods of Stoicism. Most of the work is summarized by the likes of Diogenes Laertius, uh, Cicero, and Sextus Empiricus, and we only start to get surviving accounts from later authors like Seneca the Younger, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius in the 1st and 2nd centuries AD. As we stated earlier, there was also a considerable degree of doctrinal dispute in the Hellenistic period, so trying to determine what exactly are considered the fundamental beliefs of the Stoics is somewhat of a challenge. To be sure, the Stoics were arguably the greatest pioneers of logic in all of ancient philosophy, properly systematized thanks to Chrysippus, its greatest contributor. Logic, according to the Greeks, was based around the concept of the inference of knowledge, centered around the use of language to draw conclusions from. This ranges from formal or dialectic logic and the philosophy of language. The most famous example is a syllogism, an argument that carries two premises and a conclusion. For example, all A are B, all B are C, therefore all A are C. This sort of reasoning, while argumentatively sound, may lead to some rather bizarre conclusions that we know aren't true. For instance, all humans are animals, some animals have wings, therefore, some humans have wings. Aristotle was the primary pioneer of syllogisms, but his are largely concerned with universals and terms, whereas the Stoics were preoccupied with the idea of particulars and propositions. Let's step back for a second, and break everything down as to better understand how the Stoics reached this conclusion. There are two broad aspects of Stoic formal logic, assertables and arguments. Starting with the former, an assertable is, quote, a self-complete sayable that can be stated as far as itself is concerned. That's a bit abstract, but what this essentially means is that we can make a statement, independent of our input, which is true or false depending on when they are asserted. For instance, I come up to you and say, it is daytime. Depending on when you listen to this podcast, this assertion is true if you are listening during the day, or false if you are listening at night. But it's important to note that if I did tell you at night, at some point in the future this assertion will be true, regardless of whether or not I told you at all. 
This is expanded into two types of assertables, simple and complex. A simple assertable is pretty straightforward. For example, it is snowing, something that can be definitively confirmed or denied. A complex one builds on this, using the template if x, then y. Following the previous example, if it is snowing, then it is cold outside, which requires a conditional in order to be true, the conditional reflected by the use of if. This also works in the inverse when we are looking at a negative assertable, such as if not x, then not y, or if not x, then y, such as if it is snowing, it is not hot outside. Going back earlier, this is the key difference between Aristotelian and Stoic logic, where the former is concerned with the relationship of terms and universals, and the latter on propositions that are more complicated development of reason. This all shall come into play when you form arguments, the second half of formal logic. Arguments are usually comprised of two premises and a conclusion, much like a syllogism, but in this case, they incorporate assertables, and are therefore more complex and more valid, or sound reasoning. While a syllogism is all A are B, all B are C, and thus all A are C, a Stoic argument emphasizes if, and then, and therefore. For example, if it is snowing, then it is cold outside. It is snowing, therefore it must be cold outside. The argument can have a certain value ascribed to it, described as soundness and validity. Validity is applicable if the argument is constructed in such a way as to logically guarantee the conclusion. It doesn't mean that the premises are true, but if they were, then the conclusion cannot be denied. Soundness is the next step up, needing to be both valid and have the premises be true at the same time. There are more elements to dialectic logic under the Stoic umbrella, but this is the general bare-bones overview, and honestly I don't think it's too effective or entertaining to dwell on it for too long. But grasping the fundamentals is important to understanding the Stoic need for a more rigorously developed system of reasoning, which we will explain in a little bit. So we've learned how to formulate arguments based upon language and reason. What about in regards to their epistemology, how they interpret knowledge? To start with, Stoics conceive of the mind or soul in a similar fashion to the tabula rasa of the 17th century English philosopher John Locke, a nearly blank slate lacking any innate or inborn knowledge and they fall into the camp of the empiricists with the emphasis on the senses and perception providing us a way to gain knowledge about the world. However, since we are capable of reason and rationality, there is a process by which we can internalize this observation and develop our knowledge base. All sensations are classified as fantasia, or impressions, which refer to the act of an observation imprinting, quote-unquote, upon our mind. Following the idea of a blank slate, some earlier Stoic philosophers liken the mind to a wax tablet, and the impression as a seal or stamp that makes an indentation into the malleable wax. This isn't meant to be taken too seriously, since later Stoics had to clarify that the mind was capable of receiving more than one imprint and form concepts, and we can also separate it from the things that are the product of our imagination, known as phantasma, figments that do not impress upon our souls. Following this impression, our mind turns it into a proposition. I see a bird on a tree branch, it imprints upon my mind, and I make the statement, there is a bird in the tree. Pretty straightforward. But the important part is not that I have made the proposition, it's that I have to discern whether to accept it or reject it using reason. Unlike the Epicureans, who attempted to justify their trust in the senses by claiming all perceptions are true, the Stoics argue that there are such things as false impressions, 
and there is a process by which we can determine its validity. A true impression, known as a graspable or cataleptic impression, arises from an existing object, accurately represents that object, and makes an impression upon the mind. This means that there isn't any sort of obstruction, failure of our sensory organs, or abnormalities of the object being perceived. But how do we know if the object in question exists, or whether our senses are accurately picking up the perception in the first place? Skeptics pointed out the problem in this reasoning, since it could be possible that even an incorrect impression could still carry those same traits, giving the example of the trouble one might face in determining the identity of an identical twin from a distance, since both look exactly the same, yet are completely different beings, and could be easily mistaken for one another. Indeed, if a cataleptic impression is the criterion of truth, then how does it justify itself? Is the fact that it is a catalytic impression inherently make it a criteria? This all seems a bit circular in logic. In response, later Stoics added the fourth condition, that a cataleptic impression is simply incapable of being false based upon overwhelming evidence. For instance, if I stand outside at noontime and proclaim that it is night, this is unequivocally wrong. Because of the heat of the sun beating down on me, my vision illuminated by the bright light, and the fact there are no stars visible in the sky. Admittedly, this counterargument is pretty weak, but let us assume that we are following this line of thinking. If it is indeed a graspable impression, then I assent to the proposition being real, known as Sunkata thesis. But does this mean I now have knowledge, a systematic concept of the world? Not quite. You are engaging in some level of cognitive thought and reasoning, but only one type of person truly possesses knowledge, the sage, which we will talk about when we get to ethics. Having covered logic and epistemology, let's get into the second aspect of Stoic philosophy, physics. In the conception of the universe, the Stoics have entrenched themselves firmly in the camp of the materialists. Like the Epicureans, they argue that for anything to act or be acted upon, it needs to have a corporeal form, aka a body, and immaterial objects do not exist in any capacity. Unlike the Epicureans, there is no sort of explanation of atoms or the void to define the nature of objects as to whether they exist or not. For Stoics, existence is not even the highest level or category that an object can be placed in. This may sound a bit esoteric, but let me explain. There is one broad classification that everything within the universe falls into. Something, or reality. Within the scope of reality, there are two major subcategories. The first are the corporeals, or somata, since they possess bodies that allow them to act or to be acted upon. Plants, animals, and planetary bodies all fall into this grouping, and are thought of as existing. Platonists would raise a counterpoint, though. How do we account for items that aren't usually thought of as possessing a corporeal form? This would be the soul or the mind, and abstract notions of justice, beauty, and etc., which, despite not having a physical presence, certainly do have some sort of effect on our lives. This is where the second subcategory comes in. Stoics will not concede that immaterial objects exist, and flatly deny the idea of universals, the platonic forms, but they are indeed something within the broad scale of reality. Objects that do not possess corporeal forms are known as incorporeals, or asomata, and fall into four types, void, time, place, and sayables, aka meanings. Incorporeals are real, but do not exist, 
Rather, they subsist. This gives them a role within the universe, but they certainly don't have a body to act on anything in particular. This carries over to the conception of the universe and the cosmos as a whole. One major difference from the Epicureans, who stressed the presence of the void that separates atoms from one another as they continuously fell, the Stoics believe that the universe itself is essentially one continuous sphere of finite material. No void is present within it, but void does exist outside of it. There are two essential principles, or root composition of the cosmos. There is passive bodily matter, and there is an active, rational principle, which is often called God. In Stoic thought, God is the great rational creator that imbues the properties of matter with their particular shape, though it is not quite the same as a potter giving shape to clay. Based upon our definitions of corporeal forms, both possess bodies, since one is capable of acting and the other is capable of being acted upon, but they can occupy the same space. God is imbued within the shape of matter, largely because God is the cosmos. The active principle of God is dependent upon the four elements, earth, air, water, and fire, which all possess individual characteristics. Uh, fire is hot, water is wet, air is cold, and earth is dry. There are two explanations within the Stoic doctrine that offer differing opinions as to the preeminence of certain elements. The early tradition of Zeno, drawn from the teachings of the pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus, argues that fire is the most important imbued with transformative energies from which all other elements are derived. Fire can both create and destroy, though destroy is probably not the best term. Instead of total annihilation, the properties are instead turned into something else. The universe itself is said to undergo conflagration, which has all parts of the cosmos transform into fire before it begins anew, and thus the cosmos is eternal, it changing on a grand scale, but not destroyed. The later explanation, probably derived from the work of Chrysippus, argues instead of fire, it is an additional fifth element, pneuma, or breath, which is likely a combination of fire and air. Pneuma is the life essence of all living beings, specifically the essence of reason and rationality, aka the soul, and therefore pneuma embodies the active principle for the cosmos because of its inherent rational characteristic. Pneuma itself has varying degrees to which it appears, depending on the type of object it creates. Simple, non-living objects like rocks or a puddle of water are merely held together or unified under hexis or cohesion. Plant life is a little bit more advanced, but given its apparent lack of perception or movement, it is restricted to phusis, nature, meaning that it possesses a life source, and that's about it. Animals, including humans, are the closest to the core traits of Numa, possessing the soul, which gives us our ability to reason and perceive. This is why that, despite the universe ultimately being deterministic, since it occurs in cycles of conflagration and rebirth, the Stoics emphasize the importance of free will and rational decision-making. So, this is all well and good if we believe in the idea of a rational god, but what if we don't? What is the argument for a creator god that simultaneously shapes and encompasses the universe? The syllogistic argument for the existence of a rational god is provided by Zeno. Quote, what is rational is better than what is not rational. Nothing is better than the cosmos, so the cosmos is rational. The same holds in regard of what is intelligent, and also in regard of what partakes of being animate. He continues, what emits a rational seed is itself rational. 
The cosmos emits a rational seed, so the cosmos is rational. End quote. Zeno is arguing that the cosmos possesses a degree of divine intelligence because rationality is the highest form of expression. And since we possess reason, this had to be imparted by a source that also possesses reason, i.e. God. What is also interesting are the possible interpretations of Stoic theology one might generate. It may be perceived that, as an overarching deity that comprises one cosmos, Stoicism is arguing for a monotheist outlook. On the other hand, it is fully possible to accept that traditional deities like Zeus might be the representations of a larger singular god, thus advocating a henotheistic belief. This is going to be a very important topic to discuss when we eventually talk about the developments of religion during the Hellenistic period, but keep it in the back of your mind for the time being. And I think it's finally time to move from physics to ethics and learn what it means to live virtuously. For the Stoics, there is an emphasis on living in accordance with nature, a carryover from Zeno's early experience under Cynic teachings. However, this is modified more to fit the idea that human beings, the rational creatures that we are, should live in accordance with our own nature and the nature of the cosmos, i.e. we should live virtuously, which is to be achieved by living rationally. Since we've already explained that the cosmos is rational and well-organized, then it is our duty to live according to those principles. Now, all living beings seem to share one common desire, self-preservation. We consciously and unconsciously tend to choose things that allow us to continue our existence. I eat when I'm hungry, I drink when I am thirsty, and I sleep when I'm tired, and so on and so forth. The emphasis on I am shows that this base instinct, called oikeosis, allows individuals to understand their self and their own needs, recognizing what is good and bad for our survival. This is different from the Epicurean ideal, which argues the desire for pleasure rather than survival, but it does suggest a degree of selfishness inherent to all people. However, oikeosis is a very base form of rationality, expressed mainly by children and animals, and as we develop into adult, so too does our capacity for reason. We can see this in two main examples. A parent who nurtures the well-being of their child, hopefully, does so because they genuinely care for them as individuals, which is also compelled by their nature because we may view our children as a biological extension of ourselves. We also can recognize that humans are social animals, and it is largely because of this that we are successful, which requires even a basic degree of altruism and cooperation to work. Since God has given all animals and ourselves the instinct of self-preservation, it is important that we live in accordance with this principle. And since humans are special because they seem to possess the greatest capacity for reason, we therefore must take the next logical step and view ourselves not only as individuals, but as living within the larger community of the universe. We should move from simpler desires like food or shelter towards higher purposes, i.e. virtuous living, because it directly allows us to better ourselves in both our physical and mental well-being. To the Stoic, things are ethically classified into three groupings. The first is the good, the bad, and the indifferent. The vast majority of subjects fall into this indifference category, and we might be surprised to learn that this also includes things that we might typically view as good for us, such as friendship or healthy food. And it also includes things that might be viewed as bad, 
such as poverty or sickness. Certain activities or states may have precedence because of their implicit relations with our well-being. For instance, we certainly would prefer not to be sick since it impedes our ability to flourish, and we would rather be healthy because it gives us the power to do virtuous actions. These things, however, shouldn't matter, and things that we might view as good, such as wealth, may lead us to live an unvirtuous life, such as using our wealth to pay for a drug addiction. The only thing that is truly good is virtue, and therefore the act of being virtuous. And the only thing that's truly bad is when we go against this principle. To explain further, it's not the act itself that carries a value. Rather, it's the fact that we as rational thinking beings are purposefully, consciously choosing to be virtuous is what makes something good. Indeed, we should not be focused on things we cannot control, but on what we can control. As its namesake implies, Stoicism also argues that in order to live a virtuous, rational life, we must be masters of our emotions. Now, contrary to the initial impression of a stony-faced individual, there's more depth to this argument. According to the Stoics, emotion is a voluntary assent following the observation and judgment of an impression, making them something firmly within our control. However, it would be rather absurd to claim you can actually banish all varieties of reactions, like a startle reflex when a firecracker explodes right behind you, and the Stoics take this fully into consideration. Reflexes and unconscious reactions are not considered emotions, and are largely out of our control anyways, so we shouldn't be too concerned. Emotions are problematic because they can lead us to living contrary to nature, by making either false judgments or undergoing unnecessary stress. According to the Stoics, there are emotional states that are something to be welcomed, but they're more developed from simpler ones. Instead of pleasure, we want to experience joy, caution versus fear, and wishing instead of envying. Passions, as they are called, are essentially emotional states that are caused by impulses that lead us to feelings of anger and fear, pain or pleasure. Since they require our assent, we can avoid them outright, even if we cannot eliminate their presence. Okay, so you're suggesting that I should be conscious of my decisions and emotional state, but how do I make the correct choice regarding what leads to virtuous living? According to the Stoics, all creatures are born with a notion of the appropriate, an action or decision that is natural to that animal that, when followed, would lead them to being in accordance with nature. But this brings up a valid counterpoint. We said earlier that the Stoics denied the existence of any innate knowledge, and stressed the idea of the blank slate. But how can we be naturally inclined to goodness if there is no knowledge to tell us what such goodness is? Seneca elaborates on this by claiming that we are not born with knowledge of what is good, but rather an inclination or seeds that, when honed by natural observation of the external world, will form a preconception of what the good is. In addition, virtue as a state is not a matter of degrees. You are either virtuous or you are not. By choosing to follow your sense of reason, you are assenting to the pursuit of wisdom, and only then do you have the possibility of reaching the state of virtue. Otherwise, you're corrupt. No ifs, ands, or buts. This doesn't mean that there isn't a sense of progress, and that there is an instantaneous switch from corrupt to virtuous by just deciding to follow your reason one day. Morality develops through experience and baby steps. First, you start with the base instincts of self-preservation. Second is to grasp and understand what things allow you to live in accordance with nature and those that don't. Third is applying a method of rejection and selecting the things that allow us to live in accordance. And fourth is to continuously follow that choice. Lastly, 
once you are absolutely consistent in your choices to the point where it's almost instinctual, then you may be able to say that you're on the path of righteousness. The ideal representation of the virtuous human is the Stoic sage, the only person to possess true knowledge of both human and cosmic affairs, which doesn't mean that they're superhuman, they have just hit the peak potential of the human condition. With this knowledge comes unquestionable devotion to righteous living and rationality, never holding opinions nor assenting to emotions and impulses. They are utterly in control, which means they are free of any negative influences. This is essentially the bulk of the Stoic doctrine as a whole. And due to brevity's sake, I needed to condense quite a bit of these ideas. It's a challenging philosophy to get at the root of, considering that the meditations of Marcus Aurelius are so easily readable, and are often what I recommend to people who want to start out when it comes to philosophy, but I hope you were able to get the general gist of it. One last point of interest is the role of Stoicism in politics. Contrary to the Epicureans who view politics and civic participation as getting in the way of virtuous living, the Stoics are more than willing to involve themselves in the political life. We sort of touched upon this in the initial steps of the ethics discussion on how humans, like other animals, are capable of altruism, often by viewing others as an extension of ourselves. Admittedly, when the Stoic sage helps another individual, they aren't really doing it for the benefit of the person, but rather for themselves, in the sense that they commit to virtue. Indeed, perhaps one of the successes of the Stoic movement is its flexibility to the more harsh realities of the ancient world. The Stoics speak of a cosmic city that emphasizes virtuous living together with your neighbors, under the rule of natural law, for the good of the whole, with a Stoic sage as the ideal candidate for rule, like the philosopher kings of Plato's Republic. As expected, this can be attractive to kings and emperors because of the expanded application of natural law into rule of law, which translates to their rule of law. There are also issues regarding the emphasis of the mind rather than external affairs, Rather infamously, slavery is not a subject that particularly vexed any Stoic, as a body may be enslaved, but a mind is not, so long as they are virtuous, at least according to the theory. Despite this, the flexibility of the Stoic movement kept it alive in the framework of the Roman Empire, when the Epicurean and Skeptic movements declined in favor of Neoplatonic and later Christian thought. The limited survival of any Stoic texts that meticulously laid out their doctrine meant that they were just as susceptible to declining popularity as their contemporaries, especially following the closures of the philosophical schools in the 6th century AD. Much of medieval European and Islamic thought was still dominated by Aristotle, and although during the Renaissance it began to be reintroduced to scholars by way of Cicero, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, and Seneca, it didn't have the same degree of promotion partially because of its dicey relationship with Christian beliefs. Branches like the Calvinists highly respected Stoicism, while others have expressed the difficulties in reconciling the beliefs of a corporeal god and the mortality of the soul, along with the notions of henotheism, pantheism, or perhaps even atheism, as some thinkers claimed. There are also a number of problems with the framework that were directly attacked by the more popular Platonic and Neoplatonic schools, such as questions on defining the qualification of good, or their sometimes shaky grounds for epistemology and the rejection of inborn knowledge. Still, Stoicism remained a respected institution, and did contribute to later philosophical ideas. The philosophy of Immanuel Kant has very direct parallels to Stoic belief regarding his categorical imperative and emphasis on the moral of the action, rather than the outcome of said action 
which is reflected in the Stoic emphasis on the act of pursuing virtue, is more important than the external thing we are focused upon. The conception of the blank slate and predisposition towards a sort of a natural law is emulated by the likes of John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, whether we have explicit evidence that they borrowed from those ideas or not. The French essayist Michel de Montaigne in the 16th century, though largely drawing from the skeptics, still paid homage to the Stoic philosopher Epictetus by inscribing the following line in his library, quote, That which worries men are not things, but that which they think about them. And that's where we'll end our discussion on the Stoics. The next episode, on skepticism, might be the last in our series on Hellenistic philosophy, depending on how much material I can pull out of it. I have to admit that much of this research can be quite dry at times, and I will be ready and willing to move back to our usual style of episodes once we are done. As a way to hold you over, I have interviews planned, and I'm looking to release some of them before the end of this month. So that's something to look forward to if you're looking for content more in line with what we are used to. I also want to thank all of you who bought the bookmarks from my Etsy page. They should be all, or nearly all, shipped out by the time of this episode's release, and I'm glad to hear that a couple have already received them. You can check out my account page on Etsy by clicking the link in the podcast description if you wanted to buy the bookmark, or by going to my website at www.hellenisticagepodcast.wordpress.com, where you can also find the list of sources used for this episode. Once again, thank you all for listening, and I'll be back next time for another episode of the Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs>